Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. Yes, indeed, you are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. As always, we're going to give you the news you haven't heard on your airwaves this week. First up is Gina Rushton, a journalist who's covered why abortion drugs are inaccessible and unaffordable and how permanent telehealth could change that. After that, we've got Egyptian-Australian journalist and writer Daniel Noor, discussing Arab masculinity and in his Mianjin essay, Mama's Boy. That's right. But first, we want to hear from you. You can join in on the conversation and text us in on 0409-945-945 or tweet us at Backchat FBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. So last year, New South Wales decriminalised abortion, but distance and high costs are still barriers for women across the state. But what we saw through the pandemic was that widespread adoption of telehealth made getting abortion medication easier, cheaper and safer. A study by Australia's biggest abortion provider shows demand for telehealth services has risen by 25% in recent months. But this might come to an end sooner than we think. Freelance journalist... Gina Rushton wrote a piece in The Guardian this week on why the government should extend telehealth abortion access across cities and regional areas. And we've got her on the line to explain the debate. Hi, Gina. Good morning. Thank you so much for being back on the show. Thanks for having me. So New South Wales decriminalised abortion last year. So where do we stand when it comes to accessing abortion health care in the state? Um, so access is a really hard thing to measure, especially with abortion, because as you can imagine, it's something that people don't often go public with if they've had a bad experience or if someone's, um, you know, obstructed their care. But I think it's fair to say that based on the testimony that we do have from patients and services, there are still pretty big um, access issues. So I guess the important context might be that in Queensland, when they decriminalised in 2018, that decriminalisation sort of went hand in hand with this like concerted effort to um, establish referral pathways in hospitals in the public health system and make sure that um, access to sort of free or at least subsidised um, abortion, you know, was was the next step, I guess, after decriminalisation. But in New South Wales, that wasn't really a promise that was ever made. So. Um, I guess clinics and hospitals can't hide behind the law now, but um, as far as I know, there's no major, you know, push to improve access so that women don't, you know, have to pay a private provider. Is there a difference between access in the city and regional towns? Definitely. I think, like, pretty much anywhere in Australia, you could argue that location and income are the two main factors that will impact your ability to access abortion. And, of course, Location can be overcome with income. So if you have the money to travel to pay for childcare, to pay for accommodation, pay for a surgical termination and a private provider, then you have pretty good access anyway. But we know that women in New South Wales still face barriers in accessing um, care because, you know, some of that is just that there's no providers um, or they might be in an area where the only GP or the only pharmacist is religious um, and there might not be a hospital that would see them if there was a complication. So, Gina, what are some of the stories you've heard from women about how difficult it is to access abortion? Yeah, so, I mean, (laughs) there are hundreds, but um, I guess if we take the issue of complications after a medical abortion, um, 
I've interviewed women in New South Wales who've been turned away from multiple hospitals after having um, a complication or a failed medical termination and they've had to travel for hours to get medical care. Um, I've interviewed women who've been misled by their local doctors um, about what their options are and like just so many women that have had to travel interstate. Basically, every part of Australia still has lingering barriers when it comes to abortion access. Um, so, you know, Western Australia still doesn't have safe access zones. Um, in Tasmania, they women often have to travel um, from one side of the state to the other for a surgical termination. And even in South Australia, which is technically the most progressive state when it comes to accessing abortion, because um, you can basically get one for free through the public health system, they have this weird quirk in the law where all abortions, medical or surgical, have to happen in a prescribed hospital. So it means that, like... If you're in a regional town, you might have to go into Adelaide just to take the abortion pill. Mm. So, yeah, a lot of barriers. <laughs> there have been a lot of negatives associated with the pandemic, but it mm. seems access to abortion healthcare has improved recently. Yeah, I mean, early on, it was it, the pandemic definitely um, restricted it. Like they were they were running out of face masks, and they were having charter private flights to get doctors into certain areas, but. It has improved access in terms of telehealth. So basically, when the government introduced this raft of, raft of um, temporary rebates for different telehealth consultations, IU486 was one of the um, things that offered a rebate for. So it means that women outside of major cities don't have to travel outside of their community or even interstate to access it. So IU486, you just mentioned it. What is it yes. and how does it work? Yeah, so it's just another name for a medication called mifepristone, which basically brings about an abortion. Um, in Australia, it can be used for early medical abortion up to nine weeks gestation, and it's usually, well, it's basically always used in conjunction with another drug called misoprostol, which um, expels the pregnancy, and it has a failure rate of about 2 or 3%, and um, it's usually basically the preferred option for abortion um, at an early gestation because it's cheaper and it doesn't involve surgery. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Shami. We're speaking with journo Gina Rushton about her article on normalising telehealth abortion access after COVID. So, Gina, these changes implemented during the pandemic, are they here for good or will they end at a certain date? Um, so the rebates for telehealth consultations for IU486 are scheduled to end alongside all the other temporary rebates in September, but there's a petition... Um, from sexual and reproductive health care providers for the government to keep it. So, yeah, they might. So, uh, Labor went to the last election with a policy to improve abortion access, but Scott Morrison refused to engage in that debate. Why do you think the government has been so hesitant to discuss abortion health care? I think the answer is probably pretty boring in that it's just not a pri- priority to, particip- to, like, to, to participate in what can be a really flammable debate. Scott Morrison has said it isn't an issue that um, unites Australians, which isn't really true. The majority of Australians surveyed last year said that they believe um, abortion services should be more accessible. And I just think it's it's sort of, the you know, there's always a hard right religious political faction to keep happy and um, there doesn't seem to be any political will to really take that on when the truth is that women have been finding ways to access abortion you know, for decades around some pretty archaic laws. And all the research shows that if someone wants an abortion, they'll pretty much do anything to get one. So in some ways, I think it can remain this invisible problem and or at least one that 
you know, the government can palm off to the state government. So before we let you go, Gina, what kind of myths are still circling around the issue of abortion healthcare? I mean, there are a lot because it's such a stigmatised issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, women arrive in their doctor surgery with, with basically no information. But I think probably the biggest myth, I guess it's a political myth, is that decriminalisation is this silver bullet solution and and, um, and an abortion is this issue that we've just dealt with once we've done that. And the truth is that you can change the law, but it doesn't really mean very much if there isn't um, will to improve access from health bureaucrats. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Gina. This is such an interesting topic and I really hope we uh, get somewhere like positive with it. Thank you so much, Gina. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was freelance journalist Gina Rushton on telehealth abortion care during and after the pandemic. You can check out her article about access to abortion health care in The Guardian Australia. But don't turn that dial up next. We have writer Daniel Noor to talk about his new essay memoir on ethnicity and masculinity. But first, to wake you up on the sunny Saturday morning, we're going to play Adelaide artist Takei Madster, Madster's new song, Don't Call Again. Stay tuned. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. So there's always been talk of needing more diverse perspectives in newsrooms, boardrooms, film and TV because many ethnic perspectives are silenced or too narrowly portrayed. Which is why we are speaking to Egyptian-Australian journalist and writer Daniel Noor, who's part of Western Sydney's literacy movement Sweatshop. And he's a keen he has a keen interest in exploring the migrant experience, particularly about the Egyptian diaspora. Daniel will be discussing his personal experience with masculinity and colour through the lens of his Mianjin essay, Mama's Boy. Hi, Daniel. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Shami and Sweda. I'm so happy to be here. So tell us about your essay. What inspired the memoir essay? Trauma, really, is what inspired the, the yeah. essay. And um, I suppose on some level, um, a desire for catharsis. I think a lot of people make too much out of that because they assume that writing something out will make you feel better. But of course, an essay is a very tedious and um, exacting genre. It's it's not at all like journaling, you know. And so while it was nice, um, if not quite scary, to have it out there, um, it was was hard to write. It was difficult to write. And and I suppose what, um, what inspired it more than anything was the enormous void that I felt and still feel um, if anything, corona and the awful kind of isolation of lockdown made it even more intense for me, which is I still do not see uh, young, I want to say soft, you know, not particularly um, uh, aggressive or enormously testosterone fueled Arab men or ethnic men in general, frankly, uh, on our streets, in our literature, in, in the arts. And, and that makes me feel uh, increasingly frustrated. I'm almost 30 now. I don't know how many generations of, of young uh, Arab migrants, for example, it will take in order for us to begin to see that tired turn. So your essay is called Mama's Boy. How did you come up with the name? Well, I am a mama's boy. Um, <laughs> and I was ashamed of that for many years and still feel self-conscious about it. Um, I came up with the name because of the trope of the mama's boy in both cultures, you know, Australian culture and Egyptian culture. Um, My uh, upbringing as the only boy 
in a family of, well, mainly women, and the youngest uh, of three, um, really did distinguish me, set me apart as the recipient of, uh, you know, all of the very best treats, um, quite a lot of smothering, uh, access anything I wanted, um, free rides all the way, really. So in this sense, I am a mama's boy, like down to the down to the to the tea. So in your essay, you explore the relationship between masculinity and race. Yes, how has right. so how has race shaped your perception of masculinity? Well, they're intertwined for me, and I um, have found it difficult, if not to unravel, rather to integrate the two, which is that I am a, an Egyptian Australian uh, man uh, living in Sydney. It has, been, it has been difficult for me to do that because um, there, there is a different set of conventions that govern the expectations of uh, Arab men. I mean, one of them, for example, is that they're supposed to be, um, well, a good provider. And, and needless to say, this is something that all men, um, uh, you know, are kind of inherently um, bound to, even the kind of baby cradling hipsters of, of you know, Marrickville, you know, with their work at home um, uh, partnership with their wives or what have you. I know there are many different versions of masculinity. I know that not all men go out and hunt and then bring home, you know, like a meal. But that said, um, it has been difficult for me as a writer. You know, I mean, my work, though difficult, is not particularly physically demanding. Um, and as a thinker, and as I say, just the youngest of three, surrounded by very strong women, to embrace those traditional expectations that I will, you know, go out and make millions of dollars and, and, and bring home the bacon. And I have to say those expectations are, are still pervasive for Arab men um, in Sydney, be they Lebanese or Iraqi or Egyptian or Syrian. There is still this expectation, you know. So, mm-hmm. so it's, it's been hard for me to carve out my own space, I think. Well, you know, now that you mention it, um, you know, there's been a certain portrayal in popular culture about Arab communities, specifically men, as you mentioned. So do you think these stereotypes are damaging to young men and women growing up? Yes. I mean, listen, I think life is damaging to young men and women as they grow up. You come into the world as you are and you leave damaged. But that said, um, not to sound too maudlin or bleak, what I would say is there are definitely some very disappointing examples of a portrayal that was already lacking, a precious opportunity that, yeah, frankly, I don't think was was properly used. Now, that's not to say that films, for example, like The um, the Combination, which was a, a 2003 film by the director David Field, which purported to explain, or rather to portray the Arab-Australian experience and centred around the story of... Uh, my mistake, sorry, in fact, it was a 2009 film... Um, but which purported to explore the Arabic-Australian experience, has told the story of John Morcos, who's a, a man who is a Lebanese man living in the western suburbs who was released from prison and then, after uh, dealing drugs, returns to the west of Sydney where he falls in love with an Anglo-Australian girl, ironically named Sydney, uh, a bit on the nose, but it ultimately leads to his brother being killed by a local drug lord and then him, the protagonist, exacting vengeance in a bloody street fight. Now, I have never been in a street fight. I don't even like watching UFC. I don't even like footy, you know? I mean, at the most aggressive experience I have is like maybe the altercation that begins my memoir, which is that I was seven. I was in the shower stalls at Sutherland Shire Leisure Centre. I was naked of the day, and my mum was there with me. 
And then this Anglo-Australian woman, possibly in her 40s, broad and tall, said to me, looking at my mum, he shouldn't be here. He's making us uncomfortable with his staring. Mm. This is so this is my encounter with an aggressive kind of other. It is not beating up members of my own community. It is not dealing drugs. I don't even like taking urethane because of my asthma. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, the, so the idea that these films purport to explore the Arab-Australian experience is an irrelevant idea to my life. And I, am, I, I, I suppose there is some frustration at that. Now, I don't blame the authors or the directors. I'm sure David Field, um, you know, that did try to do something unique. And I think there's another uh, author, George Basher, who is a Lebanese-Australian man. But that said... There has been a dearth of representation, and I'm just now beginning to see through Sweatshop Western Sydney um, and other <clears throat> advocacy movements like that, that tide begins slowly to change, and that's been many years in the making. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Sweta and Shami. We're speaking with Daniel Noor about his experience with masculinity and growing up as a second-generation Egyptian-Australian. So, Daniel... How important is it that we share these stories? It's everything, I think. It's everything. Um, I, I've heard that, you know, that thing of what's not um, reflected isn't validated, you know. And, and I, I do believe that to be true. I, I do think we need to see ourselves on our screens and in literature in order to be, um, to somehow manifest a better life for ourselves if that's not, if that doesn't sound too much like an Oprah episode. And you know what? I, you know, maybe it does sound like an Oprah episode. So be it. Um, I did watch a lot of Oprah growing up. I think the other difficulty, though, is um, there, there needs to be homegrown, grassroots uh, advocacy movements within the communities from which our ethnic uh, second and third generation migrant youth come. And one, if, if I can't put too, too much of a point on it, and it's a bit of a plug, admittedly, is we have a wonderful uh, movement called the Australian Egyptian Youth Forum, which is a diverse, secular coalition of all different um, Egyptian youth. We're doing an arts night, for example, in, in August. We're doing a panel event later this year where we're talking about culture and creativity. These kinds of things do matter, I think, because if we don't fight for our own place, and it has been a huge job lobbying the arts industry to give us representation, mm-hmm. then it will never happen. And, and one terrible example of that is, you know, that this, I have to say, the Sydney Morning Herald recently um, launched this, this latest round of arts funding and celebrated, you know, writing ostensibly in this culture. And very few, if any of the writers who received funding in the last round were people of colour at all. And for a population of just six, I mean, six million people in Sydney, a huge proportion of which are migrants, that seems to me more than an accident. It seems a deliberate oversight. And, and that is deeply frustrating. And you can read about that on The Guardian. Uh, Shirley, one of the sweatshop Western Sydney writers, made a point of saying that, that it is, it is now time. You know, excuses and apologies are no longer enough. So, yes, no, I absolutely think it's, it's, it's essential that we're reflected back to ourselves. Yeah, we love your passion, Daniel. Um, you also say in your essay, these stereotypes of the Arab community mean the genuine experiences of migrant families in Australia are also at risk of being silenced. What was your family's migrant experience like? Well, in the sense that maybe the humanity of our experience, the relatability of our experience was silenced. Yes, I do feel there has been a void. Um, my mum uh, missed her own mother's funeral uh, in Egypt 
to raise me and my sisters. And my dad worked, frankly, you know, like a dog for many years in factory production lines, in mixed business shops, in retail, uh, uh, in, you know, at telecom before it became Telstra, to make a life for, for us, for me and my two sisters. Now, that is not an utterly unique experience. You know, many people have had to do that. And um, I, I would just like to see the dignity of that experience mainstreamed. It is, um, again, it goes back to, to reflection. As it happens, I now work, broadly speaking, in the arts. I'm a writer in, in, uh, in a humanitarian organization, and I freelance a lot. I have never seen an Arab Australian on Neighbours or Home and Away. I have never seen an Arab Australian on a, a, a mainstream, I mean, maybe not until here come the Habib, uh, program on one of the of the corporate channels, um, and and so yes, there, there has been a, a silencing there, and that I think continues the unfortunate othering that some terrible events have precipitated. And one of those events is the 2003 Cronulla riots, um, where a group of Lebanese boys got into a fight with some Australian men on the beaches of Cronulla. Uh, over some white women, ostensibly, and um, then Alan Jones, the talkback radio presenter, took that kindling and set fuel to that flame and created this huge folk devil, this huge panic of these creepy, possibly rapey Arab men. And that persists and continues. I can't tell you the the number of times, uh, especially in my early 20s, that I was just pulled aside by the cops just for being with a white girl in the car. That happened to me, you know? So um, I, I I absolutely feel there's been a silencing and it's a dangerous kind of silence as well. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, I remember growing up watching Neighbours and they finally put an Indian family on the show. And, oh, how erotic. Yeah, and <laughs> literally, <laughs> and it was like, they all had the most basic white, white like anglicized Indian names and they only I think they killed off half the family and they were on the show for two weeks so they got the India viewer base and then killed them all off it is absolutely ridiculous <laughs> was it a fire? how many fires? I think there was a fire and a car accident and then the, the I think you know what happened is at the end they went back to India I'm not even kidding neighbours of course they did <laughs> send them back to where they came from look um, Daniel as a country do you think our perceptions of race and masculinity have changed over the years? I think there's uh, I'd like to think they're softening, I think, and I see the evolution of, like, you know, uh, metrosexual in the early 2000s, which is now becoming this kind of amorphous idea of just a man, you know, <laughs> which is not something you can necessarily put in a neat box, you know, and just because maybe he uses, I don't know, a toner uh, and takes care of uh, his body, that, that he is less of a man, you know, but... um I still think the dangerous parts about it um, persist, uh, and that's really what matters. Because you know, you, the, the, the Beyond Blue, um, you know, annual fundraising that we do, and and the the suicide prevention hotlines, you know, these exist for a reason. There is an epidemic of depression in men in this society, young men too, because they don't see themselves reflected necessarily. I don't think that's just men of color. I think as Anglo men too don't feel that kind. They don't feel fully embraced which is maybe that the, the more sensitive, um, the weaker parts of them, the parts that are called weak, uh, are not celebrated in the culture. And that takes a, lot of, uh, it takes a lot of work to unlearn, I think, what we were told um, in childhood, which is that men don't cry, men don't show weakness, 
uh, it, it, this is still huge. You know, no amount of, of progress in the last few years has completely mitigated these very damaging um, conventions. Uh, I think we need to continue to be aware of that. Daniel, we could talk to you all day. This was such a lovely conversation. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. And, um, yeah, check out the Egyptian Youth Forum on Facebook. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll tweet it out. Thanks so much, guys. That was writer and journalist Daniel Noor about Arab masculinity and his essay, Mama's Boy. Well, that's all the time we've got for the show today. Another big thanks to our producers, Natalie Sekolovska, Eden Faithful, Millie Roberts, Vanessa Lim and Nicole Ilyagoyeva. And thanks again to our guests, Gina Rushton and Daniel Noor. But before we go, we're still on the hunt for new additions to the back chance. Backchat team. Yeah, join our team. Help me say backchat better. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, if you're interested, you can apply through the FBI website and we'll also share links to our socials. Guys, we'll catch you all next week. But before we do, we're going to play a song. This is Face by my favorite modern day boy band, Brockhampton. Ooh, it's a modern day boy band. Yeah, you'll love it. <laughs> yes. Okay, have a lovely weekend, guys. I just wanna-